And our guest is Andrew Lee. He's the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury. After this conversation, I suspect it's going to be for Treasury and Sport. Uh, and he's also the federal <laughs> member for Fenner in the ACT. His latest book is Fair Game, Lessons from Sport for a Fairer Society and a Stronger Economy. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for lead. Great to be with you, and what a wonderful lead-in conversation. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, so let, let's begin with sport itself. Look, I loved the book. I loved your description of sport. I loved what really was a kind of Aristotelian depiction of sport as individual and as communal excellence, and as an excellence which, when perfected or when sought in one area of life, necessarily either trickles through or can enlighten other aspects of life. I love that. There are many people, however, Andrew, who are going to read your description of sport in that book and say that it's a description of sport which is vanishing, which is under threat from uh, cultural issues within and economic or cultural pressures without. I'm going to hand it over to you now. Well, thanks, Scott. I think the uh, vision of sport that I'm putting forward is not uh, always realised. Certainly there's aspects of sport. You think about sledging at its worst or ball tampering in cricket. Uh, but I do believe that those values of sacrifice, courage and kindness are replete in sport. Uh, just think about Harry Garside recently at the Tokyo Olympics, winning our first Olympic boxing medal in a generation and then holding open the ropes to allow his opponent to exit the, the ring. Or think about the uh, trophy that we use uh, for our biggest uh, champions in N NRL. Uh, that trophy shows two opposing captains, Norm Proven and Arthur Summons, embracing after the 1963 grand final. Uh, you go to Melbourne Olympic Park and there's a statue of John Landy, uh, not celebrating just how fast he ran, but honouring that moment where he stopped to help a fallen Ron Clark on the track uh, and then went on to win the race afterwards. Uh, so sport at its best can be that kind of full package that you described in the introduction. Uh, Bradman talked about uh, how it was important for him and a great athlete to see somebody who conducted their life with dignity, integrity, courage and modesty. Uh, and I think too about your terrific quarterly essay in which you described the erosion of politics through contempt. Uh, I think we see much less contempt on the sporting field uh, than we do in other areas of public life. Oh, Scott, are you going to go with that? Because I think I agree with Andrew on it, at the very least that last sentiment. Look, I hope so. I mean, I truly do hope so. But I worry constantly that such is the pressure for athletes to commodify themselves and to become things that can be consumed by fans that only that are addicted effectively to highlights uh, as the new burgeoning market, that athletes are being encouraged actively to become increasingly contemptuous. There was a, there was a moment for me in 2017, this rivalry between the Golden State Warriors and Cleveland Cavaliers, that had become, I mean, really quite seismic in, in, in many respects. It was between LeBron James, this kind of hulking uh, um, presence of a man who imposed himself upon the court and the game by sheer will and physical prowess versus the kind of the mercurial, impish Steph Curry. And there's one moment where Steph Curry in 2017 during the, I think it was game five of the finals, Steph Curry goes up for a... Uh, for a contested layup, and LeBron James swats it down, 
sticks his chest straight up into the smaller Curry's face and looks at him with this disdain of, it wasn't big brother, little brother. It was more of a get the hell off my court kind of thing. There was something about that that was, I don't know, it felt to me like the apex, like the pinnacle of something that had been developing and developing and now it's it seems to me everywhere from He's only doing that because Steph Curry's so good though. No. He does it because he thinks that Steph Curry is his inferior. I mean he said this and has no business being in the same conversations that he does. He thinks yeah, yeah, of him as a that, poser. But that can only be true because Steph Curry's in that conversation. Okay. So there's a certain like I'm just saying, even, even at the hottest rivalries that have defined my life, Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, uh, Robert Parrish and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, that sort of thing would have never happened between those because there was that competition of fraternity that you talked about before, Walid. And I just feel that there's this, there's the celebrification and there's the, com the self-commodification of celebrities that's working against this very refusal of contempt that I think has long been okay. a part of uh, this, sport. This leads me to a question well, can I just say, at the very time in which uh, those events are happening, and as I said, sport is not perfect, you've also got the extraordinary leadership of Colin Kaepernick yes, taking a knee true. and setting off a movement within sport which ripples through American society. And so often, sport has led national conversations around ra racial injustice, around sexism, around homophobia. You know, think of a Adam Goods, uh, think about Ian Roberts, uh, think about Billie Jean King, uh, all of them taking stands for equality, which then flow out and have an impact on the broader economy. I, as I listen Colin to Kaepernick example, was very controversial, though, because of the historical connection between the NFL and the armed services in, in, in the U.S. And, I mean, that remains to this day a very, a still quite a divisive uh, moment within American culture. Yeah. But one that uh, that showed bravery, showed courage, mm, and which uh, rippled out and caused changes through society. Mm. You know, you look at the vitriol directed towards Ian Roberts when he yeah, came out right. as gay in 1995, but it enabled so many teenage boys to suddenly say, you know, they could they could go to school and feel they could they could be what they truly were. Uh, so those those stances taken taken by sports people, the grace that sports stars have sometimes shown. Uh, I'd love to see a little bit more of that uh, that reflected in the economy, that notion that we don't have to choose between fairness and excellence, mm. that we can have both in the ideal, holistic package. One of the things that I found interesting about your book and about the, the examples that you use, and even the ones you cited here of a kind of sportsmanship, and I'd put Kaepernick to one side because that was a communication on a political issue to the public at large rather than something within the game. It's not the same thing as the, the summons proven thing or something like that. They do tend to come from a, a, an amateur era or amateur context. Mm. They, they tend to come from a, what you might say, a world of sport that's pre-commercialisation. And that's fascinating to me because when you want to, for example, draw economic lessons from them, and you do, um, it seems to me there are some of the sort of free market lessons you might draw where you talk, for example, about the benefit to players and their wages, for example, in the free movement of players, so their ability to, to contract freely in a competitive market where there are lots of teams who might be able to win the championship or something like that. That's from the professional era. But the ethical stuff you're talking about tends to come from a pre-professional era where the stakes weren't so high, the money wasn't so big and so on. And I wonder whether or not 
these two things are mutually exclusive. Is it, can you realise both dimensions of these or does the economic, the free market aspect of sport necessarily compromise the virtue aspect of sport that you want to identify? Well, still in professional sport, you want to ensure a degree of competitive balance. So you look at the Australian economy uh, over the last 40 years, and you basically had four of the biggest five firms staying on the top of the share market. Commonwealth Bank, NAB, BHP and Westpac uh, have sat atop the Australian stock market for the last 40 years. No sporting code has seen that degree of stasis. In all sports, we have this notion that you want the wooden spooners from one year to be able to have the potential to win the grand final the next year. Uh, that's why we have the draft. That's why we have revenue sharing. Uh, that's why there are, there's this notion that fluidity is a good thing in the game. Uh, that brings in fresh talents. And uh, uh, we see a, lot, a much better job being done within sport to scout out talent in unexpected places than we see in the economy. Uh, too many startup founders tend to be uh, white men whose parents started a, started a company themselves rather than people from atypical backgrounds. So we're leaving a lot of talent, economic talent, on the table and sport can potentially teach us how to find good talent across society. Yet at the same time, the examples that you mentioned there, the salary caps, the draft, etc., they actually only apply to particular sports, to American sports, to the Australian codes. I, I follow Australian sports obviously very closely and very passionately, but I also follow the world game passionately and there it's the exact opposite there there are no salary caps behemoth really can arise success is rewarded with more financial clout which means more success uh you do get an ossification of the best teams in the world that shows up in the champions league real madrid will always be there Bayern munich will always be there um manchester united let's different sort of story <laughs> that's mismanagement um liverpool have sort of returned to their sort of kings of europe crown lately made a lot of champions league finals like the the usual suspects are there with the occasional team from outside kind of coming to the party and yet what you could say about that is that sort of unleashing of limitlessness of the free market it's the most capitalist form of sport that you could come up with mm. it has created the best football that has ever been played it like it's it's created teams that do things that would just have been unimaginable to any earlier generation who might have been able to see more teams do what you described come from the bottom to the top but it's like football has just like concertedly made a decision that's not what they're after and there's a certain benefit that they're reaping there too so how far can you go withdrawing those sorts of economic lessons from the sporting universe. I'd much rather see an Australian economy that looks more like AFL than like US baseball or the UK Premier League. Now, one survey I saw a few years ago suggested that half of all Premier League fans were Manchester United fans. And that ossification at the top, uh, I don't think has been good for the sport. Uh, in Australia, our major sporting codes really do prize that notion that you can move from rags to riches, from bottom to top. And we've seen a whole lot of those uh, uh, movements, including from the Prime Minister's own 
own team, South Sydney, which was uh, on the verge of relegation from the competition and then went on to win a decade later. So this, this notion of fluidity is important to Australian sports. You're quite right. There's a couple of international ones that don't fit the mould. Uh, but we don't see enough of it in the Australian economy. We don't see enough of it in Australian society where being born into poverty uh, often makes it very hard to, uh, to move up the ladder. Can I ask you, Andrew, I mean, one, one of the things that you discuss in the book that I really find, my first response to it was hostile, I'll confess, but it's just, it's, it's <laughs> because of, no, 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 it's, it's because of who I am and sort of certain values. Uh, but then the more I think about it, I'm, I'm both, I'm troubled and curious. So you make a great deal of the importance of free agency for players, players being able to move from, say, an unhappy situation at one club to a happier situation at another. The phenomenon that players that move from one club to another oftentimes perform better. You alloy that to the observation about less geographical mobility within Australian society less employment switching and job switching within the Australian economy over the last two years. It is, it is kind of interesting that, I mean, one of the things that I value in sport, and I guess one of the things that I value in social life, is something like continuity. So in sport, younger players coming up through the ranks, the development, the slow cultivation of team culture. A single, I mean, my favorite team of all time is the 1980s Celtics, and they essentially had the same group of players for the better part of a decade with younger talent coming through. And there was an ethos there. There was a culture that was undeniable, that was inseparable from that team. And now, as Walid was describing before, we have the formation of kind of super teams due to the kind of the free agentification <laughs> of so many players. And I'm also... And, and sorry, in the AFL, it was a similar story, because once yeah. free agency came in, you did have this phenomenon, and my, my team benefited from this, of the best team being the most attractive destination for the free agent. Yeah. And so it did compromise the sort of the, the socialism of the system as it was built, um, that the teams at the bottom get the most support so they can rise to the top. But then you also have the kind of the natural benefits of kind of living in a particular place. We often talk about kind of, you know, the cultivation of community and of social bonds as being one form of good that is then often undermined by too much worker mobility, transplanting oneself to a new... So I'm just, I'm just wondering, it seems to me that it's not so much that there is a good and a bad, but there may well be competing goods. One is a good of team culture and of communal bonds, and another is a kind of a maybe more individual or more solitary good of fulfillment in particular work or, say, the immediate good of success of a particular business or of a team a particular season. How do you... Um, you must have thought about that. I'm wondering how are you reconciling those two competing goods? Oh, what a great question, because I do love community and the community that comes from knowing those around you. And so I guess what I, the kind of mobility I'm after is a mobility which allows people to move if they want to. Uh, so free agency meant that in the 2021 AFL Grand Final, a quarter of the players had come from another team. And that gave more diversity and the gains from diversity that come from working with people who just have new and fresh ways of doing things. You know, you think about the 1980s Celtic, one of the features that I worry about in that team uh, is the fact that the Celtics were one of the last teams to, uh, to play African-Americans. Uh, and uh, that impediment on mobility probably meant that the Celtics were missing out on new styles of 
the play, new ideas, and of course the African Americans players themselves missing on the ch out on the chance to whoa, play. Whoa, so, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. The, whoa, 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 whoa. So were they the first club to play an all-black uh, starting five? Oh, oh well, well, not only were they the first NBA team to draft a black player, Chuck Cooper in 1950. They were also they also had the first all-black starting lineup in 1964. They had the first black coach in Bill Russell from 1966 to 1969. I mean, the, you know, one of the fascinating things for me about about the Celtics is Boston is a notoriously racist city. And you think about the development of this team, their elevation of a kind of superstar white player, one of the first superstar white players is kind of, the, it, it, it's complex. I mean, the racial politics of Boston and the Boston Celtics is immensely complex. But I think I can say as a matter of fact that the Celtics have been long, a long way out ahead of where Boston was in terms of race relations as a city and certainly in terms of the culture of the club. But Scott, would you agree with Andrew's description of that 1980s team? Uh, not really, no. I mean, three of their central players, Cedric Maxwell, Dennis Johnson, Robert Parrish, uh, all Hall of Famers, uh, all... African-American, all essential, essential figures to any success uh, that they had. It was more, I think there's something else going on, which is that if you hold on, and this may actually underwrite Andrew's other point, they held on to their players too long, which meant that when things began to break down, things really broke down, and the 19... 90s and most of the 2000s were wilderness for the Celtics. So, so that that's another kind of stagnation that, of course, can take place when you hold on to a culture for too long. And right. you think and about LeBron James' comment, comments about Celtic fans and uh, going, what do you say, racist as? Yeah, 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 yeah. But he's got he's got skin in the game. I'm I'm not, I'm not gonna. <laughs> that, I do think some of this conversation. That's a certain interested comment that I'm not. I, gonna... so, I feel like some of this conversation is skewed by Scott's love of American sport. <laughs> we tend to we tend to well, particularly basketball. We tend to forget they're Americans as well, and that's partly I think what inflects some of the perhaps egotistical posturing that you're critiquing here, Scott, which I don't necessarily recognise from every other sport. Yeah, true. But, uh, but uh, Andrew, the the broader point about player mobility is really interesting mm. because one of the celebrated things about any player is where they turn down the opportunity to go to a big club that wants them or a more successful club in that moment to to stay, you know, a one-team player. I think of um, Steven Gerrard as the classic example, but didn't win the Premier League with Liverpool ever and is a Liverpool legend partly because of that, mm. um, was courted by all sorts of teams that would have delivered him all sorts of silverware. Now, I know what you might say is that was his choice and what I'm after is people being able to make that choice. But what I'm interested in is the, the sort of... It's the resonance of that choice. It's that that offers a value that is deeply uneconomic, if you like, because it didn't deliver, you know, the economic benefits to Stephen Gerrard in the form of silverware. It didn't deliver any of those economic benefits to the Liverpool fans who didn't see their team win a Premier League um, in his era. It delivered something more. And I wonder if the lesson there is actually that market inefficiency <laughs> is a good thing if you use broader than economic lenses and that by using an economic lens to, I don't know, draw lessons from these things, you might be, I don't know, compromising something more or missing something more. 
Well, I mean, I think about the players who were unable to move as a, as a result of uh, prior to the free agency reforms, and they weren't necessarily happier in their teams. Uh, there's uh, non-compete clauses and no-poach clauses, which makes it harder for people to leave their firms and set up a competing organisation or to move to a rival. And uh, we've even seen illegal uh, instances in which employers band together to agree that they won't uh, poach each other's uh, workers. All of those things not only drive down wages but also take away opportunities from people who would otherwise have benefited. Uh, you know, the, uh, the fact that stamp duty is a big impediment to geographic mobility is one of the things that troubles me. I don't want everyone to move house every year but I would like people who see an opportunity in another, another uh, part of the country to be able to go there without paying a huge economic price. Right, but if we take that analogy further and the analogy with sport further, if we freed up geographic mobility so much, that would necessarily compromise community, wouldn't it? Because you'd be much more likely to wake up one day and find that your neighbours are completely different to what they were a year ago, two years ago, ten years ago. Oh, that's completely right. So if you go back uh, 50,000 years, all humans are living in bands of about 150 people. Everyone knows everyone else from birth to death. Uh, that society is incredibly tightly bonded, but it misses the benefits of diversity that come from living in a large cosmopolitan city. The idea flow, the culinary benefits, the intellectual ga ga gains. Uh, diverse teams work better, diverse companies are more effective, diverse cities tend to be more productive. So we get the gains from diversity and, and yes that means meeting new people and uh, and I think that's uh, that's part of of living a good life I think we live uh, at a higher standard of living than our ancestors of 50,000 years ago despite the fact that they were so tightly bonded mm. you are listening to the minefield on ABC RN well Ali is my name Scott Stevens is my co-host that other voice you're hearing which you may recognize from the television machine if you watch question time or something like that every now and again is Andrew Lee the federal member for Fenner Andrew, one of the things that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't see the name pop up, but maybe it did. But the, the name that I had sort of constantly uh, echoing through my brain as I was reading your book it was, uh, was uh, Louis Brandeis's uh, critique of uh, antitrust behavior and especially his condemnation of what he called the curse of bigness, the kind of the mm. tendency to centralize, to monopolize. And the other thing I suppose against myself, this is why my head is a really, really conflicted place, uh, was a, a description of uh, the Lake, the, one of the Lakers' most successful coaches, Pat Riley, who said that one of the problems that overwhelms any fully functioning team is what he called the curse of more. In other words, you win one year, and then everybody who contributed to that wants more for themselves. It seems to me that you've got the anti-monopolistic pro-competition element to your book, which is absolutely vital. And I think competition as a way of bringing the best, as a way of, uh, of achieving important degrees of both individual and social excellence. I think that's almost unquestionable. But then you've got this other curse, the curse of more, namely not willing to sacrifice if my uh, gains lead to the immiseration of somebody else. Again, I'm just wondering how you hold those two things together. Say, the importance of competition on the outside, 
but also the importance of self-restraint for the sake of the common good on the inside. That, it seems to me, are, the, are two of the great lessons of sport for society as a whole. Yeah, so I'm so glad you brought up uh, Louis Brandeis. He was in the 50,000-word uh, version of this book, but oh, not great. in the 25,000-word <laughs> version. Uh, and, uh, you know, Fair Game really is inspired in, in its discussion of competition by the move of economics away from the so-called Chicago school towards the so-called New Brandeis school, mm. which does worry about size for its own sake. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, at their very best, corporate Australia does recognise that it, size isn't everything and that dominating a market and maximising shareholder value is not the only thing that a firm's created for. Uh, that firms are also about looking after their customers, their workers and the broader community. Uh, and firms that do that effectively tend to hold on to staff longer, they tend to have uh, more collegial relationships with the unions, uh, they tend to give back to the community through so, uh, social uh, programs uh, and they're also aware of their, uh, their responsibility for uh, addressing climate change. Uh, responsible companies really aren't just thinking about their size, uh, they're also thinking about the good that they can do to the community. But what about the workers? Because they, they're the analogue of the players, right? Mm. And what Scott's talking about, I think, which you see play out over and over again in salary capped sports, mm. is the only way for a good team to remain a good team and stay together is for players to accept less than their market value. That's right. That's, right. That's the only way they can do that. And once you do that, that like, is that something you're prepared to ask of workers? It certainly shouldn't be. I mean, you think about the uh, 2017 deal by the Rugby League Players Association, which saw the lowest paid players get a 25% pay increase. Uh, I didn't see any uh, hit to the overall performance of Rugby League as a result of that settlement. It seemed to make total sense. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the same about uh, penalty rates. Uh, paying people a little bit more for working on the weekends is an expression of kindness to them and to their families. And it's also a reflection of... Uh, the, the notion that we need to share the benefits uh, somebody for somebody to be having lunch in a cafe on a public holiday someone else has to be serving them in a mm. cafe in a public holiday sure. uh, and so the far-sighted businesses recognize that they simply can't have low-paid workers and high-paid customers that ultimately your customers are your workers mm. granted awesome. and agreed but the fact remains even with the pay bump that the players association negotiated that just changed, that just reset the market rates. If you, if you wanted to play for the Melbourne Storm or you wanted to play for the Sydney Roosters, for example, you would have to accept less than you would get if you went to the West Tigers or to the Canterbury Bulldogs because those are great clubs. They are managing strong rosters. They've just won premierships in recent history. I think 2017, the Storm did win it. Uh, the Roosters won a few years before and then a couple of years after that. So these are, th these are clubs that work by somehow coming up with a way to pay less than market rate. So the sacrifice here isn't this... It's, it's a different sort of sacrifice, isn't it, to the one that says I'm paying more at a cafe in order to fund the penalty rates of the person who's working because they're giving up what we regard as a society as sacred time, so the weekends or Sundays particularly. Um, and one issue I think that you do touch on kind of in the book is the way that the notion of sacred time is kind of withering away, mm -hmm. is, is, which I think is a really important observation. But but well, it's a different sort of, of a sacrifice, isn't it? It's, it's, it's one that actually says, no, 
it's a cap and trade system, <laughs> with salaries for players. Well, you are reflecting the fact that the very best kind of job not only brings a fulfilling pay packet, but also brings satisfaction at work. And one of the things I worry about jobs more more generally is that we've uh, t moved away from the notion of the dignity of work. Mm -hmm. I really admire Michael Sandel's observation that uh, too much of pop culture looks down on working class men. Think about the way in which dads are portrayed in All in the Family or The Simpsons. Uh, and that really, it's, it's sport is one of the few areas in which uh, Braun is celebrated uh, and which a successful working class bloke can really be seen as uh, somebody who's put up on a pedestal. I'd like to see more of that in how we regard workers more generally, uh, that philosophy that all work has dignity. Mm. Andrew, I think we can all say it's a very stimulating book. I love the synthesis. I love just the fact that you even thought to do it. Um, and I love that you've made yourself available to speak with us on the minefield today. So thank you very much. We'll release you back to your political slash parliamentary duties, such as they are at the moment. Um, and uh, no doubt we'll speak to you again. Real pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Andrew Lee, Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, Federal Member for Fenner in the ACT, and uh, more importantly, the uh, author of a new book, which is called Fair Game, uh, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. We'll see you next time.